Well, the year was 1984, and that was the year that I learned what it meant to be grounded. You see, I was part of a preschool, a kindergarten, in the beginnings of my academic pursuits. I was learning intense academic things like colors and animals. It was there in this bastion of learning and self-control that is kindergarten that my flesh reared its ugly head. One day, our kind teacher decided that we had been obedient enough that she was going to reward us with some lemonade. And so she went to the kitchen to get the lemonade, and unbeknownst to her, someone in the class hatched the idea that the teacher's desk would be a wonderful launching pad from which we could practice our Superman flying skills. It's a good idea, right? Yeah. And so one by one, we all lined up next to her desk. We were very orderly. We lined up. We climbed up launched ourselves off with the best man of steel impression, and we erupted in laughter and cheering with each new flight. Unfortunately, right as I stepped to my starting position for takeoff, who walked through the door into the classroom but our teacher holding the tray of lemonade. Now, needless to say, things did not go well for me from that point on, nor for the class. Our lemonade privileges were instantly revoked. We were made to sit in silence as a class, pondering our horrific sin. My parents were called, and it was then that I learned what being grounded from our newly purchased, like a week earlier, TV meant. Isn't that horrible? It's horrible. It's like purgatory. But what is so funny about this story is that because I was the one that was at the front of the desk when she entered the room, it was assumed that I was the ringleader. Now, I, of course would like to believe that I would never commit such a heinous act of blatant five-year-old sin. But for the life of me, I cannot remember if I was the one who initiated it, and neither can my parents. The question is, does it matter? Does it matter who initiated it? You see, when sin works its way through a group of people, it really doesn't matter who started it. Sin doesn't differentiate or even care who started it. It's up to each of us to stop it to stop it within the context of what each of us can control, what we can influence. Now, after three weeks in the section on blessings and cursings here in Deuteronomy 28, we come to our text in Deuteronomy 29 talking about how to fight against communal disobedience and sin. If God is looking at obedience and disobedience as a communal thing, then the question becomes, what am I supposed to do about it? And what our teaching today will point towards is the practical piece of how we do this, You can imagine that the Israelites were standing there thinking to themselves, it sounds as if we are doomed to sin and commit disobedience and be cursed because of it. How do I even affect it as an individual? Our teaching today will show us some points that we can take in to help us heed the warnings of what we have learned so far. And really what it comes down to is simply this. You can write this down. This is the title for the sermon today. Taking responsibility for our individual part in a holy community taking responsibility for our individual part in a holy community. We began Deuteronomy with the collective mission that we've revisited numerous times over this last year, that collectively, the people of God would proclaim the character and mission of Yahweh. They proclaim this to the surrounding people groups by their communal adherence to the covenant union with God and their communal obedience to his rule. From there, we spent many months moving through the stipulations of the covenant. We've almost been in Deuteronomy a full year at this point, and we went through all the stipulations of the covenant law, and we finished with this section of blessings and cursings in chapter 28. And now, as I said, if I'm one of those Israelites, I stand on the banks of the Jordan looking into the promised land, thinking about this covenant that God has placed before me, and thinking to myself, whoa, this is serious. This is very serious. And I would probably think to myself, man, we are bound to fail. And really, if you read through this section of chapter 29 and into chapter 30, you get that feeling, don't you? That there is no choice whatsoever, that the people are going to fail, they're going to sin, and any form of obedience will only happen when God forces it. And I think that Christians today have much of the same idea. I'm bound to sin, I'm bound to fail, you know, until God fully takes me over and makes me an automaton, I'm just going to sin. And there is some truth to that. Obviously, we are still in these mortal bodies that have flesh, and even Paul himself said, I do not do the things that I want to do. And so we really, if he's our starting quarterback, we have no shot. I'm like fifth string compared to Paul. I don't know about you. But 
all the same, we need to understand the same mindset because it's very applicable to our lives today as Christians because we have much of the same idea. I'm going to sin. There's nothing I can do about it, so why even try? Now, let's take a preview into chapter 30, our text for next week, and read what it says in verses 1 through 3. Uh, Just look ahead a little bit here, and you'll see why I said that it seems as if they're bound to fail. It says in verse 30, uh, or chapter 30, verse 1, and when all these things, meaning uh, they have been exiled and pushed out of their land because of their disobedience, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. He'll have mercy on you. And it will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. It seems reasonable to believe then that the people at this point in time, standing there listening to Moses, had no choice or no chance. They could have this covenant renewal ceremony here, as it's titled even in most of your Bibles in the heading, that the covenant is renewed and they have this ceremony, but it wouldn't matter because the paradox is, is that They are being asked to make a choice, and yet they're going to sin. How do we deal with this? Because this is paradoxical. Just a bit later in chapter 30, Moses states in the second half of the chapter that those same people are given a choice at that moment. Read that with me there, verses 15 through 18. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, By loving the Lord your God, by walking his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. This is a major thorn in the argument of what's called individual predestination, isn't it? That God predestines each person that follows him or not. Just as the first section of chapter 30 is a thorn in the argument that there is free will, that there's choice. You confused yet? Because I am. (laughs) You see, the key to reading this very confusing text is that the reality is it's most likely both God's sovereign will and our free will. And that overall, the people of God will fail until God acts decisively to cause us all to walk in complete obedience by the power of, of his Holy Spirit. These statements in chapter 30 and 31 are statements about the collective state of God's people, and God knows the collective state of his people. Their collective end is known. Just like he can say to the church, you will not fail, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Their collective state is known, but within that collective or communal state, there are individuals that make up that community at any given point in time. And what we will see today is that for the community to be holy, each person must individually take on their responsibility to move that community forward towards holiness. That's why even though the collective whole of Israel can be told, you will be exiled in the midst of the collective whole, you have righteous people like the prophets, like some of the priests. Their collective end is known, but there's individual choice within the collective end. So now that I've started to confuse you, we'll keep confusing you, and we'll start with Deuteronomy 29, verse 1, and I promise I will try and work it all out for you. 29.1. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb, or you might know it as Sinai. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread and you have not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, 
which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. What we see first in this ceremony of covenant renewal is that God has been and will be faithful to fulfill his covenant obligations. God has been and will be faithful to fulfill his covenant obligations. It's an outstanding question in so many of the minds and hearts of Christians as we go through life. Is God going to be faithful to me? Is he going to forsake me? And rather than looking to the truth of Scripture, we often look to the lie of our circumstances and gauge God's faithfulness upon the judge and jury of our own feelings, our own emotions in any given situation. We are not alone in this, though. If you guys remember the story, Israel had just been freed from tyranny and enslavement. They had been broken free from Egypt, a place that they had been enslaved in for 400 years. And they literally get outside the gates, and what do they start doing? God, have you brought us out here to die? Right? They instantaneously started doubting God's faithfulness. Their circumstances dictated his faithfulness. But Moses is clear here to begin this ceremony of covenant renewal with a reminder of how faithful God was to them. He begins with reminding the people of three things. You can write these down if you'd like. He reminds them of God's redemption, God's provision, and God's protection. His redemption, his provision, and his protection. God's redemption is there in verses 2 through 3. He says, remember how God saved you, how he redeemed you out of Egypt, and did so through miraculous signs. God's redemption. God's provision is there in verses 5 through 6. Remember how God made it so you had food from heaven and water from the rocky ground. Even your shoes did not wear out after 40 years of walking. I guess they just don't make shoes like they used to. God's provision. And God's protection is there in verses 7 through 8. Remember Sihon and Og. God defeated them on your behalf and gave you their land. His redemption, his provision, his protection. God has done all the work of these things, of redemption, of provision, of protection. He has been faithful to his part of his covenant obligations. And one day, Moses informed the people that God was going to complete the work of bringing them fully into the land and making them fully obedient. And the Old Testament tells us this in other places. He's saying, trust that God will be faithful because he has always been faithful to you. Now, dear brothers and sisters, we sit in a very similar situation. We look at the world around us and maybe even the state of our own hearts, and we think, God, what are you doing? We are doomed to fail. We look at this church and we see all of the accusations and the, the immorality and the abuse and we think we are going to crash face first into the dirt of destruction. How is this possible? But I stand here to proclaim to you that God is and always will be faithful to his people. How do we know this? Well, the exact same thing. God has redeemed us from the kingdom of darkness and the pagan belief that is innate to us the belief that enslaved us in our own sin. He redeemed us by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary and his resurrection from the grave three days later. God provided the sacrifice through his son and showed us by amazing signs and wonders that he was going to free us from the burden of our sin against him that brought separation and impending punishment of death. God has redeemed us. God has provided for us. Each and every one of us can attest to the fact that our God provides, even in times where it seems darkest. We've survived and our shoes have not worn out to the point where we must stop walking towards his promises. Even if you're sitting here today doubting God's goodness, wondering if you're even in relationship with Jesus, he is faithful to have provided you the shoes to walk here. He's faithful to help you walk with him. And most of all, he's provided eternal life which can never be taken from us. God has protected us from the greatest enemy, which is his adversary and the destruction that Satan wants for us. God has given us the knowledge that even death cannot hold us, and even when the world fights against us, it will not hold us back from bringing righteousness and justice. God has proven faithful, and he will prove himself faithful. He has redeemed us. He has provided for us. He has protected us. He will return to judge the living and the dead and restore heaven and earth 
to the state of being in fullness of relationship and shalom with him. He will prove good on his promises. Guys, if he can rise from the dead, he can easily return and smash the kingdom of darkness. Like Israel of Deuteronomy, we must recall that God has been and will be faithful to fulfill his covenant obligations. Now, if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're sitting here today and you recognize that, yeah, you might believe that this guy Jesus existed, that yes, he died on the cross, and, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian because that means I'm a nice person and I'm an American, so God bless America, right? So I'm a Christian. If that's you and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ today, then I would encourage you to step into one. Our elders are going to be back during worship, the second set of worship, and they would love to talk with you about what it is to walk with Jesus Christ as a disciple. And we would love to help disciple you in your walk with him. Now, you might say, before we move on, if you're really paying attention and the coffee's already kicked in and you have all your mental faculties about you, you'll say, hold on a second. Look at verse 4, Hans. It says in verse 4 that God has not given us everything we need, that God has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And you will rightly pause me there and point out to me that this verse makes it seem as though God has not done everything he can. How many of you are going to do that? How many of you are going to raise your hands and point that out? Anyone? Okay, the coffee hasn't kicked in yet. Well, let's pause the train of thought we have been on for just a moment in Deuteronomy 29 and answer a big question that this section brings up, 29, 30, 31. Is it God's fault that people were not going to stay true to their covenant obligations? In other words, is it God's fault that they would sin? We hear this from non-believers all the time, and part of my job in training you and equipping you to be ministers of the gospel is that you need to be able to answer this question. The world will ask, it's, if God is in control, then is it his fault that sin occurs? I mean, if God would just give the Israelites eyes to see, then they would be more holy and obedient, right? Well, this is what's weird about this section. Look at verse 2 again. Notice that it says, you have seen all that the Lord did. Look at verse 3. Notice that it says, that your eyes saw. But then verse 4 says, the Lord has not given you eyes to see. Isn't the Bible confusing sometimes? This is confusing because it is the mysterious paradox of what many theologians would call compatibilism. Everybody say compatibilism. Now, don't let your eyes roll over in your head yet. This isn't too heavy a theology for you. You guys can get this, okay? We're talking about something that's huge in being a key in understanding God's interaction with our physical realm. Compatibilism is the theological term that means this. It's given to the fact that sinful events that occur on earth can be the result of both human free will and God's divine sovereignty at the same time. Now, sovereignty is not a word we use often, but it basically means the power of a king, that he's sovereign. It's kind of like the sovereign country of the United States. We are independent in our sovereignty, our power. Now, what's interesting about this is that it is a complete mystery how God's divine sovereignty and human free will can exist at the same time, and so for centuries. People who love to be nerds and geek out on this stuff fight about, is it God's will? Is it free will? Let's talk about predestination. Let's talk about, is it choice? Is it not? But let me give you an example about how it is both and how what I'm teaching you is what I believe in, what I, I think that the Bible teaches. Compatibilism can exist where both happen. Let me give you an example here. Okay? This is from 2 Samuel 24.1. And I want you to compare these three texts I'm going to give you. This is speaking about the story when David goes and numbers the people and God doesn't like that he numbers the people for various reasons in context, which I could show you. And then... Uh, he strikes them with a plague because of it. And so the question is, is what was the cause? What was the causation of it? Notice 2 Samuel 24, 1 says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he, which is who? Who's the he? The Lord incited David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. Okay, so who's the cause there? God, yep. This is from 2 Samuel 24, 10, just nine verses later. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Who's the cause there? David. Okay, here's the curveball. You ready for this? This is from 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 21. 
It says, talking about the same exact event, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Her? So who is it? All speak of the same event, but the combination of them speak in this interesting mix of causation. God, Satan, and they're not the same, okay, we all know this, and David. Anybody confused? This is the language that the biblical authors use to capture two seemingly contrary ideas that are always both true. What are they? You can write these down. Or if you're not a fast writer, just hold on and the slides will be up online this week. First, we have to understand that God is sovereign as king and so all things are under his authority. This is always true, folks. God is sovereign as king and all things are always under his authority. Secondly, though, we must understand that man is responsible for his actions as an agent with free will. Okay, this is some of the basics of Reformed theology. Man is responsible for his actions as an agent with free will. What helps is this third idea that we throw in, that the spiritual realm and its interaction with our world is beyond our comprehension. So it is true that God has not yet provided eyes to see to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 29, and yet because of the sinfulness of their hearts and the evil choices of the Israelites, they had witnessed and yet failed to see God's faithfulness. Okay? Now, this isn't going to solve it for you, but I'm going to do something I never, ever do because I actually hate object lessons. Imagine for a second that our will is this sponge, okay? This sponge is human will. And if we view God's will in the same substantial fashion, in other words, it's the exact same as ours, it has the exact same results as ours, so it's another sponge, then only one can exist at any given point in time. Either God's will or our own will has to exist. And this is how we as humans, in our limited knowledge, think about causation. But if God's will is different substantially, meaning different in substance or in state from our own, let's say it's this jar full of water, and it affects things on the physical plane differently, then something cool happens. If this water symbolizes God's will and this water symbolizes our will, they can both exist in the same place at the same time because they're different. Now, for you who are science geeks, you're like, okay, I'm thinking about the molecular part of this and how it actually works out. Okay, stop geeking out, come back down to the rest of our level. And the reality is, is because they're different states, one liquid, one solid, they can exist in a different space at a different time. And one's porous, okay? Now, enough of the science lesson. The reality is, is that doesn't solve it for us, nor does that prove that it exists, but it does help us begin to, to illustrate it, to understand how it might work. God's will and his interaction with the physical realm is outside of our comprehension. I don't know how it practically works, but it does. It's like the question of how God can be God in heaven right now, seated upon a throne, and yet dwell amongst his church, which we all believe. How does it work? I have no idea but it does. God is far above us and different from us, and so sometimes we must get used to the mystery. And this mystery will help us understand why God can both be sovereign, and yet we have to use our choices and free will to walk within his sovereignty. Does that make sense? Okay, think about the sponge and the water. They both have to exist. That is why we need the Holy Spirit to drive us, and yet we need to choose to be in line with the Holy Spirit. Okay, how many of your brains are scrambled? Raise your hand. A few of you, okay. Let's take a breath and bring this theological point back into the text we have before us. The author is trying to show us that he fully believes God is king over all, authority over all, but the king has allowed the free will of the people of Israel to dictate their obedience or lack thereof. The author is keeping God's authority and power intact while also speaking to Israel and saying, you need to exercise your free will in one way or another. You have a part in determining what will happen. And so this leads the individual Israelite, as it does for us today, to ask the question, what individual part do I have to play in the obedience and disobedience of God's people? So let's read on there. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy 29, verse 16. Moses says, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. 
Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Now, does anyone ever say that? No, of course not. But that's the state of their heart. He says, this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. And the word sweeping there in the Hebrew is like a sharp knife edge against a piece of metal. There is nothing left after it gets done. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. And the next generation, your children, who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say when they see the afflictions of that land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown, nothing grown where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admah and Zeboim which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The reality is, is that's pretty scary. Again, not much of Deuteronomy shows up in your daily inbox about the positive, encouraging word, right? But this is what we learned from this. You can write this down. This is the second main point today. We must each individually search out the root of idolatry in the midst of God's people. We must each individually search out the root of idolatry in the midst of God's people. Now, take a breath with me for a second because I know, I know some of you, based on your experience with the church, are having images of the Salem witch trial and overzealous authoritarian church leaders and elders sticking their nose where it doesn't belong in order to condemn. I know that's what's popping into many of your brains right now. But please hear me, that is not what this text is saying, nor is it what we desire as a church. You see, the reason something like the Salem witch trials was so perverse is because people took this idea of weeding out the root of sin amongst God's people as a command that meant that those holy among us must point the finger outward and find those people who are sinning and boot them out of the church so that the rest of us quote-unquote holy people can prosper. It's an act of arrogance. And with full knowledge, this is why I partially understand many people's averse reaction to church membership. When we put it in place here at this church, no matter how hard I tried to reason with folks that we loved, many heard membership as a medium of accusation and false condemnation. But in reality, Moses is saying nothing of the sort. What he is doing is speaking to every individual Israelite and saying, you need to check your own heart. Notice the range of people that are spoken of. Every person, man, woman, child, regardless of age, regardless of status, you got the water carriers, you got the people chopping wood. Every person must make this covenant commitment. There was not a single person in this entire group that could go, nah, I'm going to opt out. What would happen? They'd say, okay, move on your way. It cannot be someone else's faith. It has to be you delved in diving in with as much passion as everyone else. For those of you that are younger in the audience, for those of you who are college students or high school students, it can no longer be your parents' faith. It has to be your faith. You have to choose. You have to decide whether you will step into covenant faithfulness. Mom and dad aren't going to be there when the choices to sin abound. You have to decide. It can't be your spouse's faith. If you get drawn here as a husband because, man, your wife really likes this Christian stuff, but it's kind of not for you. You'd rather be fishing. You have to dive in. You must choose to commit to this work of searching out your own root of sin and idolatry and fight back against it. Brother or sister, look deep into your own heart to see if you have a root of idolatry there. None of us are going to come in and pull it out for you. 
Now, why do we need to do this? Why do we need to search it out? Because if we don't deal with it, look at the outcome it will have on the community of which you are a part. One of the biggest lies in society right now is sin is fine as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Guys, that never, ever, ever works. Ever. I could give you story after story after story. I could teach for five hours today just on stories of people who believe that to be true and then wreck their marriages, wreck their families, wreck their societies, wreck their communities, wreck their places of work, wreck their churches. It never works. If we don't deal with it, it will lead to the destruction of the whole. The Bible gives us example after example of this happening. One I'll turn you to is the story of Achan. Go with me to Joshua 7, just a little bit to the right. Joshua 7, verses 1 through 9. You guys know the story? They just defeated Jericho. All the walls came tumbling down. Okay, some of you got the felt stories in grade school. That's good. All right. Jericho came tumbling down. Then the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against Achan. Is that what it says? No. No, Who does it say? The people of Israel. It burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. In other words, this is when you're standing, on the, you're standing in the baseball field and you're the outfielder and everybody says, easy out, everybody come on in, easy out, right? That's what's going on here, right? We don't need to even send our good guys. Let's send in the third string, Okay. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from there, uh, uh, from the people, and they fled from before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites and to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off your name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? They, had, they thought they had this thing in the bag. God is on their side. I is small potatoes. Let's do this. But their strength was in their covenant relationship with God. And the fact that one person had defaulted on the covenant affected the entire community. Well, Joshua responds by saying, God, what is your problem? Well, let's look at how God responds. Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Yikes. Okay, Lord. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. Wait a minute. Hold on a second. That's not the story. Who, who had sinned? Achan. Achan had sinned. But who does God see had sinned? Israel. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. <laughs> if I were the other Israelites, I would be stringing up Achan from the quickest pull I could find, right? God, this is the one you want, right? I didn't do anything, right? Parents, imagine your kids, right? Something breaks in the house. What happens? You run in, and what do all the children who didn't break it do? <laughs> right? They all throw the finger towards the one who broke it. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from amongst you. Well, you guys know the story. They all appeared in the Valley of Achor the next day, a name that means troubled. And they started out, and they started to narrow it down from tribes to clans all the way to families. Can you imagine how awkward this was? And eventually, they got to the individual of Achan. And there was Achan with idolatry at the foundation of his family's tent. He had taken the things from Jericho, and he'd placed them under his tent to hide them. 
and they were hidden as his most valuable possessions that he wanted no one else to find, more valuable to him than his covenant with God or his place amongst God's people. One man's sin led to the defeat of God's people and the destruction of his own family. A serious caution and warning for each of us this morning. If only Achan had decided to hold himself accountable and take the secret things and declare them before the people. Church, what if we could rewrite this? What if the Bible was make your own adventure? I'm glad that it's not, but what if it was? What if Achan had said to his brothers in arms at this point, guys, I am hurting financially. I really want to take these spoils so that I can be rich. But I value our covenant with God, and I value you one more, and so I need your help in fighting this temptation. How pleased would God have been? How honored would his brothers have been to bear that weight with him? And how different would the story have been, a story of life instead of death? You see, God had done what he needed to for his covenant faithfulness. And now the response was in the hands of Achan and every other Israelite. Similarly, dear brothers and sisters, God has done what he promised for us. He has given us eternal life. He has redeemed us from our sin. He has forgiven us all the rebellion we had towards him. He has poured out his Holy Spirit upon his people. He has given us one another in the form of the local body of Christ. He has done everything. He's given us his word. He's done everything. He's made good on what he has promised for us. He's redeemed us. He has provided for us. He has protected us. And so it is right now, it is a right thing that we must each individually respond by searching out the root of idolatry in the midst of God's people. And I don't mean pointing fingers. I mean looking inside, doing it in our own lives first. To do this well, we must collectively agree that, you can write this last point down, searching out the root of sin only works if we all individually agree to it. Searching out the root of sin only works if we all individually agree to it. I learned years ago as a counselor that counseling is far different than pastoring. That's why I think a lot of times there's some argument between the two parties. People go to a pastor to have them open up the Bible, point to a verse, and command them, tell them. It's kind of like what preaching is. People do not do that with a counselor. And so the reality is, is when I sit down with somebody and they say, or they infer that they want to hear my opinion about something on, in their life, and I'm doing it in the role of counselor, I have a rule of three. Three questions. First question is, do you really want to hear my opinion? Oh, yeah, 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 I do. Second question. What if my opinion is in direct contrast to yours? What if it completely goes against what you already are thinking? Hmm. Some people have looked at me and said, yeah, no, I don't want to hear what you have to say then. Right? Even then, though they then say yes, then I ask the third question, which is, okay, if I tell you my opinion, will you then be angry with me if you don't like it? Some people have said, yeah, no, I don't want to hear your opinion then but some people have gone on to ask for it. You see, we as humans, we don't like people sticking their nose in our business. But if we ask for it, something changes. We become teachable. We become humble. We open our lives up to be taught. Now, the reality is, is this is part of what we have to understand about this verse. You guys have heard the saying that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Well, the Bible shows us that a community is only as strong as its weakest member. That's why in Romans and 1 Corinthians, we are told you got to be careful and watch out for the weakest members among you. Those who are stronger need to bear the weaknesses of others. For our collective root of sin to be removed from our midst, it cannot be the institution of a membership in which the elders are inspectors of your lives that come in and sniff out your sin. That will quickly fail, and it will cause hatred and hurt. It'll turn into a kangaroo court and witch trials and leave people in the dust not wanting to be part of God's kingdom. You see, the Bible definitely declares that we must search out the root, but the reality is, is that it only works if we each willingly lay our lives down before our brothers and sisters. If we each submit ourselves to one another, 
and work together to root out sin present in all of our individual lives. And I mean all. But before we get into it too much further, let's break this down a bit. First, what is a root of sin and how does it manifest? This is one of those Christianese phrases that we're all like, yeah, we know what it means. And then really we're like, no, what's that mean, right? A root of sin, what does it mean? Well, it's simple. A root of sin is a hidden and unseen motivation and value system. It might even be a way of thinking that, if not dealt with, will eventually grow to produce poisonous fruit in one's life and amongst God's people. A great example is gossip. When we gossip, we do so because information is currency, and we want to be the richest person among our peers. It makes us valuable to our friends, and it betrays a deeper inferiority that we actually have that we do not believe we are valuable without the gossip. People in your life that you know, maybe even people in this church that you find gossip regularly, they are betraying themselves as having a deep inferiority complex that says, I need to gossip to you. I need to give you information for you to actually want me in your life. These roots of idolatry manifest in the fruit of poisonous and noxious weeds of gossip. And to kill gossip in a church, each person must agree to not participate in it. So that when it arises, it can quickly be killed because all of us collectively are looking at ourselves and asking the question, do I want to participate in gossip? We don't have to sit there and point the finger and say, how dare you, you gossiper? No, we simply say, yeah, I'm not going to participate in that. And how quickly does it die? Proverbs says, where there is no firewood, the fire quickly goes out. And that's the case with gossip. So that's an example of what a root of sin is. But second, we need to ask the question, how do I know if I have a root of sin or idolatry in my life? This is not just automatic. We cannot just assume that each of us know what the sins are. Well, you can use the qualification that Moses gives here in 2919. The person who has the root of sin in their life will say this, when they hear the words of the sworn covenant, they will bless themselves in their heart and say, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. The question to ask is, what areas are you being stubborn in? In what areas are people trying to teach you something and you're refusing to hear it because you know that you're right? They're wrong, and you're right. The word here, I know I shall be safe, is actually the word shalom. The person is basically saying, I know I will have peace with God and all the rest of you. This is wild in the church today, isn't it? People who walk completely outside of the new covenant community of Christ's church and yet say, I'm good with God. I don't know about the rest of you. I love God, but I hate his church. As I've said many times, you know what's coming if you say, I love you, Hans, but I hate your wife, Kelly. It's not going to be pretty. And you definitely don't have a relationship with me. See, the reality is, is this is the heart of someone who says, All the rest of you, you go ahead and do whatever you want, but I'm safe with God because I believe so. Dear church, what are those areas where you are holding firm regardless of what you are being told by those around you? What are those areas where you have said that you are right and everyone else is wrong? Where are those areas where you know what the word says about a sin and yet you do it anyway? Where are you close to God and the rest of the people are not? These questions will often point us to the root of idolatry that needs to be dealt with. But sometimes we must recognize that we are all blind people that do not see the roots. I don't know about you guys, but I'm terrible at seeing my own sin. Anybody else like that? I think that's part of the reason why God gave us marriage, isn't it? Right? I'm terrible at seeing my own areas of sin. We don't have eyes to see for so many reasons that I could get into from a psychological perspective. It's survival mechanisms that tell us to cut off our understanding of where we're broken. It's too hard for us to see the sin when we're living in its midst. And so what the Bible tells us is that we need the Holy Spirit to reveal these areas, these roots of sin to us. But brothers and sisters, in our hyper-individualistic Christian mentality, we think that all we need is to read the Word and listen to it, and the Holy Spirit will just tell us. I don't know about you guys, but I've been reading the Word of God for 20 years, and I am amazed at how every time I read a section, I've already read something new manifests itself. Now, if you actually do this, 
you will be amazed at what is revealed and dealt with before it ever manifests itself. If you're in the Word constantly and praying and in communion with the Holy Spirit. But it's not just that. Because what about when our ears are too deaf or our heart is too hard to hear the Spirit speak individually to us? It is then that we must remember that the Spirit is likewise in the midst of the congregation of which we are a part. And sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks through his fellowship. So we must invite others into our lives, into the vulnerability of our lives, to examine our internal lives and give them room to lovingly point out the weeds in our life. And when they do, rather than pointing right back at them in defensiveness and saying, well, this is your sin, we need to humbly accept what they are saying and ask others around us, is this thing that's been pointed out true? with a heart to be taught. Dear church, years ago, some of you who've been around long enough, years ago, I think it was about six years ago now, I blew up at the church in a really heavy way. And Patrick, as a wonderful elder, came to me afterwards and said, you know you can never do that again, right? And I, in my heart, I knew it, but I also was fighting it. I have my reasons why I'm angry and why I blew up. And I started to ask people, do I have an issue? And they very kindly said, yeah, I think so. So the next day I walked into my mentor, uh, his office at Western, and I said, I need help. What people have told me is true. I've fought it, but I need to humble myself. And the last six years has been a process of me figuring out all the reasons why I was stubborn of heart. You see, letting people in and letting them speak to the weeds in our life, that is what it means to be a community of people in covenant commitment to God and to one another. We have each individually proclaimed that we desire to have assistance in weeding out the root of bitterness and idolatry in our lives when we commit to one another. And we will do our best individually, but when we don't see it, and the Spirit of God within the community does, we will submit, even if it is hard, to the community in confession, repentance, and humility. Now, can we all agree in here? I know we've got a lot of visitors in here today. Can we all agree that this is an immensely scary proposition? Can we agree with that? I don't want you people coming in my life and figuring out where my problems are. That's scary, isn't it? Because the ultimate lie that Satan has told us is, if people truly knew who you were, they wouldn't accept you. But dear church, what the church does is it accepts you because we know that you are broken. Christ accepted us on the cross because he knew that we were broken. It's amazing that we follow a guy that died for our sins, and yet what do we do as Christians? Constantly try and hide our sinfulness from each other. You ever get that? It's bizarre. It's scary for every one of us, even me, but it is what we are called to do. Brothers and sisters, how might you be blessing yourself thinking you are safe in the secrecy of your hardened heart when in actuality you are cursing yourself by not dealing with the root of bitterness or sin in your own life. If we can only identify it, then we as people can partner together to remove it. And this is where we move to our last verse of the text today, back in Deuteronomy. Why don't you turn there with me to Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. This is an incredibly difficult verse to interpret because it seems so vague. It's very mystical. Many modern translators take it in the context of chapter 30 and say it speaks to the fact that only God knows the future and we do not, so we need to just focus on obedience in the here and now. And that is a good interpretation and it could very well be true. But many other commentators over the years have connected it instead to chapter 29 and said that it is a verse that is dealing with the individual and communal responsibilities of people in Israel. Here's how one commentator puts it. Apparently, Moses is here assuring the people who have heard how the private schemes of one man may lead to the destruction of the entire land, that this does not mean that they will be held collectively responsible for sins committed by individuals in secret. God will punish those and will hold the people responsible only if they fail to punish sins of whose commission they are aware. This idea is referred to in rabbinic literature by saying all Israelites are surety for one another. Some people think this is where Paul got his saying in Romans 12, that we are all members of one another. Meaning that the entire community is held accountable for the conduct of its individual members unless the community restrains the sinners. 
Now, again, many of us flinch and think, see, sin-sniffing, fault-finding, I don't want these people in my life. But guys, this verse actually clears that up. As a church body, as members of a congregational church, we are held responsible by God to assist in cleaning up the mess caused by sin that has produced visible poisonous fruit. We are not called to go out and search out your sin committed in private. It is up to you to bring that up and deal with it yourself within the security of the body of Christ. And so as a church, this is what we're trying to do and trying to create at Mission Fellowship. An environment where we do not sin sniff and search out each other's faults as if we alone are the one that has the right, that are right and, and holy. But we are trying to create an environment in which we so prize and honor our covenant relationship with God and with one another that we will lower everything else in order to fulfill it, including our pride. We're trying to build an environment where we each prioritize rooting out the idolatry in our own lives, the things we prize above obedience to Christ and share them in safe, secure relationship with brothers and sisters within the body so that we might hold one another accountable. So that when we see the root of bitterness growing and bearing poisonous fruit, we might lovingly and gently ask one another to examine it. And in so doing, lovingly bring the gentle discipline of a loving Father God to bear in our lives. The section that Kelly read earlier from 2 Corinthians 13 captures Paul's sentiment that is based upon this same idea that we have looked at today. I know I'm going to go a little bit long today, but it's okay. We're going to go through just two more sections of Scripture, and I think it will help clear everything up for you guys and show how we in the New Covenant are very similar to the Old Covenant in certain aspects. Not in a lot of aspects, but in some we are, especially as the people of God. And so look with me at 2 Corinthians 13 and look at what Kelly read us earlier and what Paul is saying. Paul is finishing off this letter to the Corinthians who had all sorts of garbage and chaos going on in their church. Paul says, This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. He's acting as an elder here. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. See, what Paul is saying is don't accept one Christian's charge against another. We're going to clean up this mess. You see, when one Christian charges another and it's a fight between two people, that's not God speaking, even if you want it to be. But when the body shown here as the two or three witnesses comes to you and says, brother, there is a root that needs to be taken care of. Recognize that it's not just about that person and Christ, but about Christ speaking through his church. You see, if we all have this idea that I'm the one that determines what the Holy Spirit is saying at all times, then we will never, ever act on how the church is supposed to act in the New Testament. We have to be willing to hear from the body of Christ. Notice the wording of the second part of verse 3. God, he is not weak in dealing with you. In other words, as if he had not disciplined you but is powerful among you. Notice what he did there? He gave the power of God's authority to the body to deal with the sin in their midst. In other words, you all need to each do what we've discussed today. Now look at verse 5. Examine yourselves, he says, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? We constantly each need to be doing this work of testing ourselves, looking at ourselves, examining ourselves. Well, Hans, what about the security of the believer in Christ? It's absolutely there if you're testing yourselves. Let me give it to you this way. I know that my marriage will not end until we die. How do I know this? Because as far as it's up to me, my wife is pretty perfect, so I'm not worried about her end. As far as it's up to me, if I'm just a schmuck and never test myself, can I say that I'm secure in my marriage? Mm -mm. But if I'm constantly checking my own interaction in the relationship, can I be pretty assured that the marriage is going to go well? Wives, raise your hand if you would love to have a husband who's constantly asking himself the question, am I being a loving husband? Raise your hand, ladies. 
Husbands, how many of you would love to have a wife who's constantly asking the question, am I being a loving, respectful wife? Raise your hand. Yeah. And that's the reality. And so how does this play out? How does it correct it? Verse 11, finally, brothers, then rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Notice all the interaction with one another. The Holy Spirit working amidst God's people. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Notice that it is the sponge and the water all working at the same time. Is it God's sovereignty and his Holy Spirit working among people? Or is it the people doing all these actions on their own? What's the answer? Yes, Yes, it's both. How do we know if God's working among us? Because we're working. How do we know if we're working? Well, because God's among us. They're both there. And then look at what verse 14 calls this. For those of you who come from a Pentecostal background like I do and feel like I'm sucking the Holy Spirit out of the text, look at what it says. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. The Holy Spirit is not some magical force that just goes around and touches people like fairy dust. He is amongst his people working in them. Let me turn you to one more place in light of this idea. Go to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. This is the last place I'll turn you today. You guys still with me? Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this is speaking of the, the historical and orthodox and obedient church. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What's this saying? It's saying root out the sin, get rid of it so that we can run the race together. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What's that position called, the right hand of the throne of God? That means he is our king. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. Notice that? Innate in that is we should be struggling against sin. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives." It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Now, if you know your Bible well, I'm not going to have you turn there, but there's this section called Matthew 18 in the Gospels. And Matthew 18 speaks of what to do when there's sin against a member of the church. And Matthew 18 says that God disciplines. It's the section called church discipline. But it starts out with this odd section. It says, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault. Well, is God disciplining or is it the human? What's the answer? Yes, both. See, we take on discipline within the body because that's how God disciplines his people. It's not if a tree falls on your house and it's a quote-unquote act of God. That is not God disciplining you. That's because you have a tree that has bad roots and it fell because there was a windstorm. It's not God punishing you. Besides this, he says, Or verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Notice what it says there. If you don't submit to the process of discipline, which doesn't mean you're always going to get disciplined. It just means if you're not submitting yourself to the process, what are you called? An illegitimate son. I didn't write that, guys. That's pretty crazy. It says, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Does it ever feel good when the body comes to us and says, hey, brother, you got something you need to correct? It's painful, but it yields good fruit. Therefore, he says, verse 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, notice it's in quotes there, springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. 
This is speaking about the people that are reading this letter, helping one another walk in accountability to God's holiness. Now, he steps in because we might immediately respond and say, well, man, I'm so glad that that's all Old Testament stuff. And we in the New Testament, yeah, we just have to, you know, whenever we sin, we just say, God, please forgive me and I can go to church and I can hide my sin and do whatever else because I'm forgiven. I got to go to heaven. I prayed that prayer when I was a kid, right? Guys, that's not New Testament teaching because the New Testament, remember, testament means covenant. The New Covenant teaches this. Notice verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and the darkness and gloom and the tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. This is speaking of the first giving or the giving of the first covenant. We haven't come to that covenant. Verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall, not, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, he sang to the New Testament believers, to the New Testament Hebrews, to the New Covenant Hebrews. He's saying, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn. What's that mean? It means the church of Jesus Christ. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it, or see, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they do not escape, they did not escape when uh, they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. You see, dear brothers and sisters, quote, church discipline, unquote, is not some authoritarian hammer that should be swung by arrogant elders to make a church full of cliques at war with one another. It is a fellowship of the Spirit, a cloud of witnesses lovingly disciplining themselves, ourselves, and when needed, bringing our hardest fights against sin to those around us so that we might strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Because we have come to a better covenant than was given on Mount Sinai. We have come instead to the covenant given on Mount Zion, on the hill of Calvary, into the hands of the Savior who gave his life for us so that we might be part of his congregation, his assembly enrolled in heaven as part of the new covenant that he has mediated by the blood of the cross that cleanses away our sins now and into eternity. This is the fellowship of the Spirit. And today I recognize, and we all need to recognize, that we will never, ever be able to force anyone, even those of you who sit here today and may be balking at what I'm saying, we will never, ever be able to force you into this kind of fellowship. We can simply call one another to this level of commitment, conviction, and partnership in taking responsibility for our individual part in a holy community. And if you are sitting there today and thinking, I need more time to figure out if this is actually God, if this is actually his word, if this is actually his request, then we want to tell you we love you and that's okay. And we will keep calling you. We will keep pulling you into greater and greater commitment to God's people. But we do so not because we want to hammer you, but because we love you and we want to abide by the commands of our Savior and King. Now, if you're sitting here today and this is your first run at Christianity and you're completely confused, I'm sad for that. I'd love to talk to you more. But I want to tell you this. This is not, what we're talking about today, an issue of justification. It's not an issue of how you step into relationship with Jesus. Because that was completed once for all by Jesus Christ, nothing of our own works, nothing about our obedience. But what we're talking about today is an issue of sanctification, Sanctification occurs in the life of a believer because they are part of a community full of individuals who recognize the commitment to one another and each take responsibility for rooting out our own sin and bringing it to the midst of God's people so that we can be transformed. That is a community that will image and manifest God in powerful ways as they gather and scatter amongst their community as salt and light. If you're sitting here today and you are already a covenant member of Mission Fellowship, we want to invite you, or you are not already, sorry, if you're not already a covenant member of Mission Fellowship, we want to invite you today to take part.
Our membership covenant is not a divinely inspired document, but it is a tool that formally declares to the rest of the body of Christ around us that we do indeed want to engage together with them in this fight we've described today. And so we invite you to take part of it. If you want to do that, you can talk to one of us in the back during worship, or you can talk to the wonderful folks at the info table after service. We want to walk with you in your desire to serve Christ. And so we invite you into that today. If you are already a covenant member of Mission Fellowship, I want us to take today reading this section of Deuteronomy 29 that is covenant renewal. And I want us to go to the table of communion to renew our covenant commitment to God and to one another as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup that Christ himself said symbolizes the new covenant with him and with each other. And in doing so, I want each of us to search out our hearts. Search out our hearts for those areas in which we may be blessing ourselves while simultaneously not staying true to the covenant promises we have made to Christ and to one another. Let us instead renew our covenant commitment to Christ and to his people today. Not because we need to do so to be in relationship with God, that was accomplished on the cross, but because by his grace, he has paved a way for that to occur in spite of our sin and rebellion against him. Today, let us take responsibility for our individual part in a holy community. You might say, Hans, what if I don't? What if I just continue in my salvation and my knowledge that Jesus has saved me and I never become part of this covenant community as a member? Then I would say, we're happy to have you and we love you. But know this, those of us who want to help you in your sanctification will never stick our nose into your business. We will not help you rub off the rough edges. We will allow you to sit just as you are. And if you are a Christian who wants to delve deeper into sanctification, then we're waiting for you to ask us to help you in that process. And that's what being part of a covenant community is. I want to be submitted to you and humble myself before the rest of you so that you can help me grow in sanctification. Today, let's take responsibility for our individual part in a holy community.